Our lesson and our scripture reading this morning comes from the 13th chapter of Mark. Those of you who want to follow along will find it on page 898 of the Bibles in front of you, if you have the New King James Version. Mark 13, beginning at verse 24 to 27, the context is the coming of the Son of Man. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. And then the context shifts to the parable of the fig tree. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Good morning. Please leave your Bibles open to Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 13. That's where we'll be this morning. I ask for God's blessing on the reading and preaching of His Word. Most of us have a great interest in the future. What's going to happen tomorrow? What will happen next week? Next year? If I could give you a detailed map of the rest of your life, with everything written on it that was going to happen in your life from today to the end, would you want it? Would you want to have that information? If you could know your future, would you want to know? I once asked a group of older Christians that question. And they all said without hesitation, without giving it just a whole lot of thought, that no, they didn't want to know. But they did not want a map of all the things that would happen to the end of their lives. It wasn't that they didn't care about what was going to unfold. They cared very much, but they didn't want to know in advance. Because they understood that if you told them, they would learn some things that were really wonderful and great, but they would also learn things that were bad and difficult. And whether good or bad, having that knowledge of what was coming would be a burden. And so they were content to know that their lives were in God's hands and to live each day as he gave them. We are, though, interested in the future. And in Mark chapter 13, on the Mount of Olives, not long before his arrest and his trial, his crucifixion, Jesus is talking about the future. Actually, he's speaking of two futures, one roughly 40 years ahead, 
that would bring death and destruction to Jerusalem. And another future that he knew was coming, but one which he could not say when it was coming. When Jesus speaks of the future in Mark 13 and other places, he doesn't speak of what he hopes will happen. He doesn't speak of what might happen, but of what he knows will happen. In Mark 13 and verse 2, Jesus is talking with Peter and James and John and Andrew. And they are awed by the grandeur and the beauty of the temple. But Jesus warns them that the day was going to come when the temple would be destroyed. When all of that beautiful architecture, all the grandeur would be in ruins. Not one of the massive stones would be left on top of each other. Now, understandably, the disciples wanted to know more about that. When was that going to happen? How was it going to happen? What are you talking about? And beginning in verse 5 of Mark 13, Jesus answers their questions. And most of the chapter, down through about verse 24, is about the destruction of Jerusalem. It was coming in less than 40 years. But at verse 32, Jesus turns to that other future which he knows for certain is coming, but which he does not know when it is coming. He knows that sometime in the future, God will send him a second time with great glory and power. And when he comes again, the saints, the church, will be gathered from all over the earth. And we can be sure that this is going to happen because we have Jesus' word on it. And Jesus' word never fails. Jesus' prophecy concerning the destruction of Jerusalem was fulfilled in 70 AD. But we still await Jesus' second coming. Again, there isn't any question that he's going to come again because he promised that he would. And his return should be something that we long for, something that we hope for, something that we anticipate with joy, because his coming will mean our going home. But our greater practical concern as we wait for Jesus' second coming should be with what he expects us to be doing as we wait for him. And Jesus explains that in Mark 13 in the last verses, verse 32 to 37. Please read along with me. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, Stay awake. Jesus first insists on the uncertainty of 
when he will come again. Verse 32 and 33. He refuses to give the four disciples a timetable for his return. Or more accurately, Jesus says he cannot give them a timetable for his return because he himself does not know when he will return. God hasn't told him. That is information that the Father has that has not been shared with the Son. And not only is Jesus in the dark about the time of his coming, so is everyone else. No one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels of heaven. Jesus is God's Son, and he is one with his Father. But there is at least this amount of knowledge, this hour that God has chosen that Jesus does not know. Now, the fact that no one knows but God is not a reason to despair, nor is it a reason to doubt. Jesus may not know the exact day and hour are known because they've been set by God himself. The day God has chosen, though, is drawing near. It's getting closer and closer. In Romans chapter 13, in verse 11, the Apostle Paul writes that our salvation is nearer now to us than when we first believed. With each passing day, we get closer to the day when Jesus will come again. And Paul also says, addressing something very similar here, that, that we live by faith. We don't live by sight. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. We live by faith and our lives and our futures are in God's hands. And Jesus is confident that while he does not know when he will return, God does know. And it will take place according to the plans that God has made. But what good does it do to say that? What good does it do to acknowledge that? What impact should that have on how we live, on what kind of people we are? How should the fact that Jesus is coming again at a time only God knows shape and influence the kind of people that we are as God's people? I know this is ancient history, but in 1998 and more in 1999, all that we heard in the news was Y2K, the millennium bug. There was just great fear and great concern that computers were going to self-destruct when the calendars turned to 1-1-2000. When they turned to that date, civilization as we knew it would be destroyed. Chaos, death, destruction, every conceivable disaster was going to hit, or so it was feared by a great many people. I know one family that didn't even own a computer and they were scared to death of what was going to happen. Well, people responded to this, to Y2K, in three ways. Some were convinced that the absolute worst was about to happen. And as a result of their conviction, they went out and stockpiled food. They filled their basements and, and sheds up with food. They bought water. They got cash out of their banks. They even bought weapons so that they could defend themselves when that would happen. And they had enough to last for years. 
Whatever happened when those computers all died, they were ready. Others thought it was a big joke, and they did nothing. They made no preparations of any kind. But there was a third group of people. And the third group of people understood that some problems might arise with the computers that are such a part of our world. After all, we had never had two zeros come up on on the date, what might happen. And so they made some preparations, but their preparations were not for years and years and years ahead, but for a short disruption. So they bought a few extra groceries, and they got some bottles of water, and they got a little extra cash, and then they went about their normal routines. That was their preparation. Well, January 1st, 2000 arrived, and nothing happened. Oh, there were a few computer systems that had problems, but they were the kinds of things that computer technicians could address and take care of. And they were quickly taken care of. But the computers didn't die. The world didn't end. The world economy didn't collapse. And McDonald's went right on turning out Big Macs as if nothing had happened. Because nothing had happened. And most people yawned and said big deal and were so glad that they didn't have years of food in their basement. The predicted disaster and destruction never materialized. I think Christians tend to react to what the Bible says about the second coming in the same way. Some of us live as if Jesus was never going to come again. It's never going to happen. And the fact that he came once doesn't tell them anything. That they don't get anything from the fact that God had promised 700 years and then sent his son. That doesn't register. As far as their lives are concerned, he's not coming. And others believe that every event in the world is a sign that his coming is about to happen. The evening news and the morning paper are their guides to the future. And if you just read the paper right and just listen to the news right, you can know exactly what Jesus is doing, what's going to happen when he comes. Some went so far as to say the date is going to be, and they would announce that. And some believed it. And some changed their lives accordingly. But Jesus calls us to a middle way to the way he desires the impact this will have on our lives. He is coming again. We don't know when, but he is coming again. And so Jesus says to us, be on guard. Be alert. Live in anticipation that it will happen. Live a life for Jesus that is ready to answer his call whenever he chooses to come. Live a life for Jesus. That's the way to respond to this truth that he's going to come again. But how do we do that? How do we live such a life? Well, Jesus teaches us how to be on guard and alert in verses 34 to 36. Jesus tells a parable. Living a life that is ready for his coming is like a man going away on a journey. Before he leaves, he calls his servants together and puts them in charge of his house. He assigns each of them a task. And he tells the doorkeeper, you stay awake. 
You keep watch. And the man leaves without a word at all about when he is going to return. Well, Jesus, like the man in the parable, was going to be leaving them soon. And he doesn't know how long he'll be gone. But he does know that he's coming back, that he's going to return. And for the time of waiting, Jesus will assign the apostles certain tasks that they are to accomplish. Jesus has work that he wants them to do. He will give the church certain work that it must do. And that being the case, Jesus' word to us is stay awake. Be alert. Be ready. The master may come as the sun sets and the night draws near. He may come home at the hour of midnight. He may come home when the very first ray of the sun comes over the eastern horizon, the time when roosters crow. Or it may be full morning in the bright sunlight. Again, they don't know when he will come, but be warned, Jesus says. If he comes suddenly, unexpectedly, as he surely will, don't let him find you sleeping. Nudge that person next to you, would you? Don't, don't be asleep, Jesus says. Jesus had work for Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and the rest of the apostles. Urgent work that they were to do. He had work for all of his disciples, for all of his church. And he tells them, I don't want to return and find you ignoring those duties and responsibilities. As he says elsewhere in a very similar context, blessed are those whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Matthew 24, verse 46. Watching for Jesus, being on guard and alert, simply involves doing the work that God has given us to do. We don't know when he will come. We only know that he will. And none of us wants Jesus to wake up, wake us from our sleep or to say to Jesus, oh, I thought you were coming next year. Or, oh, we, we were going to get around to that one of these days. Or we had more important things to do. If Jesus suddenly stood here in front of us, if suddenly he was manifest to us, what would he say about us? What would he find? Would he find a church that is alert and awake and ready? Or would he find a church that's asleep and not watching? Would he find us doing his work or doing something else? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands? Is that what he'd find? In our life together as a congregation, hopefully we are prepared. And hopefully we are waiting for him the way he instructs. But then Jesus concludes in verse 37, What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. See, at this point, Jesus looks beyond Peter and the others. He looks beyond the twelve and beyond the church that will be born on Pentecost. He looks beyond the church that will spread like wildfire and conquer an empire. Jesus is looking beyond them to his church in America. He's looking beyond them to his church in Annapolis, Maryland. And he says, 
And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus says to his watch, be on guard, be alert, be vigilant, be ready for my coming. And he reminds us he is coming, and so we are to be watchful. And if watchfulness is work and service, then what do we need to be doing? What do we need to be about? Well, some of our watchfulness will involve faithfulness in worship. As Hebrews teaches us in Hebrews 10, 19-25, we draw near to God by worshiping Him, by meeting together, by sharing together in the life of the church, being faithful in praise and prayer and in remembering in the supper and listening to the word and in giving glorifies God. But it also makes us spiritually ready for Jesus' coming. I think the need that we have here is to be more intentional in our worship, to be more thoughtful, more focused on God and what we're saying to him. But that's part of how we stay awake. Another task that Jesus has assigned us as we wait for his return is to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. He has entrusted us with the gospel and the responsibility of taking the gospel to lost people. If we are faithful to Jesus' desire to seek and to save the lost, we will be vigilant and we will be ready when he comes. We will be doing the work that he expects of us. And the second need that we have is to be less turned inward and more turned outward in the way we live together. James calls visiting widows and orphans pure and undefiled religion. Jesus says in Matthew 25 that feeding hungry people, giving drink to thirsty people, clothing naked people, visiting sick people, visiting people in prison, welcoming strangers, are the very things that will please him on the day of judgment. If we're doing those things, we will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Thinking about our life together, those are some of the things that we enjoy doing and we do very well. But the Lord hasn't come yet. And there are more opportunities all around us to be kind and to be helpful, to be servants, to be benevolent to those that are in need. Paul told the Colossians that he proclaimed Jesus and warned every person and taught every person with all, all wisdom to the end that he might present everyone mature in Christ. The aim, the goal of Paul's preaching and teaching was that every Christian he encountered would grow up and mature in the faith. And the church always has that task. It is always our responsibility to teach and to mentor and to encourage people in their spiritual lives. Some among us are discouraged and some of us are weak. Some of us have a great need for a Barnabas to come along to our side and, and to encourage us and help us. We have some wonderful young people. We have some young people that truly love the Lord, but they're young people. And they need our guidance and they need our help. They may not want it because that's the nature of being teens, but that's our responsibility. That is our task. There are other things that could be added to this list. 
There's work for us to do. Work that Jesus expects us to be doing, that he expects to find us doing when he comes again. And the question is really pretty simple, whether we're going to do it or not. Whether all of us are going to do what we can to serve the Lord as we wait for the Lord to come. We have a wonderful example of how to live that way. Jesus himself was faithful and obedient in all that the Father gave him to do. And as a result, we have the hope of heaven. We have salvation because Jesus did the work that his Father gave him to do. So when he comes to gather the saints in Annapolis home, what's he going to find? Will he find us asleep? Will he find us preoccupied or otherwise occupied? Or will he find us on guard, alert and watching, doing those things that he has given his church to do? What Jesus said to them, he says to all of us. There are two final things that I want you to be sure and hear from this lesson. Maybe hearing this, you're just thinking, well, that's just another guilt trip. He's just working on us again, twisting our arms. And if that's what you're hearing, I feel sorry for you because that was never my intention this morning. Because what I want to impress on all of us is what an incredible honor it is. What an amazing privilege it is to serve the Lord. Stop and think about it. God sent his own son to die on the cross for human salvation. And he has asked you and me to have a hand a part in making sure that people gain that gospel. Many years ago, I heard a preacher from Baltimore named Humphrey Fouts. Some of you probably know Brother Fouts. He was speaking at a seminar, and he, he thanked the organizers for inviting him, but then he said something that stayed with me all the rest of my life. He said, it is always a privilege to say a word for the Lord. Teaching a Bible class on Sunday morning isn't a burden and a hardship. It's a privilege. It's an honor. Going by and seeing Eloise with the Lord's Supper or, or any of the things that we might do, those aren't burdens. They're not something to pass off to somebody else. They're a privilege. They're an honor. They come to people who have been welcomed by God into his kingdom and are part of this unfolding plan. And, and I just hope and pray that all of us will look at the work of the church that way, that, that it's an honor and a privilege to be doing it. But more than that, I hope it's a joy for us. That's the second thing. That we'll see in, in teaching Bible classes or working with the midshipmen or teaching Thursday morning ladies' class, whatever it is we put our hands to, that it's really a joy. Isn't it a joy to know that these things that we do that may seem to be so small or maybe not very important, put a smile on Jesus' face? That when he sees his church doing the things that he's given us to do, that it pleases him? Shouldn't that make us glad? Oh, what do you mean? I don't have time to teach a Bible class. I've got too many other things i got to do. Well, I can't make that visit. i got too much to do. Sometimes it's just empty of joy. But we're doing it for the Lord. We're doing it to please Him. And it does please Him. He delights when we do those things. Oh, can we say we are ready, brother, ready for the soul's bright home, Say, will he find you and me still watching, waiting, waiting when the Lord returns? 
We're going to sing an invitation song. And the invitation this morning is, is not so much to come down the front, but the invitation is to look at your life, to look at your heart, to look at your relationship with God. Are you awake? Are you alert? Or have you fallen asleep? Maybe you're here this morning in need of prayer, needing to do God's will in some way. But we count it a great privilege, a great honor to be of service to you. If you'll just let us know how we can serve. Won't you come while we stand and sing?